Go ahead and be seated. I don't know why this is doing this. That was such a sweet worship service and uh, an unfortunate uh, transition into the message through the crackling of uh, unreliable microphone wire. I apologize. But God is so sweet, is he not? Give the Lord a hand one more time. I want you to find your way to Romans chapter 5, and I also want you to find your way to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 5, verse 5, really focusing on verse 5, but looking at verses 5 to 8 this morning in order to understand what it is that Paul is saying to us in verse 5. And we'll also be looking uh, at, towards the end, we're going to be considering the exhortation that Paul gives to the church at Thessalonica in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 5. So it's verse 5 both ways, Romans 5, 5, verse, or 2 Thessalonians 3, 5, whichever one we're at. But go ahead and find your way to, uh, to both of those. And uh, as, as Dustin was praying for us, a few moments ago, he concluded his prayer and he, he quoted that psalm that says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And that's the question, isn't it? Have you tasted and have you seen? Or to put it another way, have you experienced the Lord? Because that's what we're talking about this morning. I'd like to just read the scripture for us, verses 5 to 8. And then we'll pray and we'll get to work. If you want to read with me, Romans 5, verse 5, it says, for, sorry, it says, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's a miracle. It's just a wonder to behold. And I'm, my prayer for you this morning is that you would see it. And so let's just bow and let's pray and ask God to help us. Father in heaven, as we open your word, our prayer is that you would remind us of that experience that you have given to every single one of your children, of you pouring out your love for us into our hearts through the Holy Spirit as we come to understand by faith the significance of the cross. If there are any here this morning, Lord, who have never had that experience, I pray you'd convict them and that you would open their eyes to see the love that you have for them as well. Show us this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Do we see only what we want to see? Do we experience only what we want to experience? Or is there something more to it? Back during World War I, when the British army was liberating Palestine, a combined force of troops from the British Empire was closely pursuing a group of Turkish soldiers across the desert there in Palestine. 
And as they sensed victory was in their hands, they relentlessly pursued after the Turkish troops. And in doing so, they quickly left behind their supply train. And that was a crucial mistake because what they left behind without realizing it was their water. Chasing an enemy troop across the barren desert with no water quickly resulted in disaster. Before long, all of the soldiers were dehydrated and they began to feel the effects of being parched and not having water. According to eyewitness accounts from the time, their mouths dried up and felt like cotton. Their lips swelled and turned that ugly, dark shade of purple. They suffered crushing headaches and they stumbled through the desert, dizzy and unable to maintain their balance. And all of them struggled with that fluttering sensation in their stomach that comes with being lighthearted and faint. Before long, they began to see water everywhere in this desert. But it wasn't actually water, it was a mirage. It was the optical illusion of water without actually being water. You might be thinking to yourself, what exactly is a mirage? We've all seen it. It's uh, sometimes seen as a mirror on a hot pavement or a hot piece of concrete, and it's the result of an optical illusion that is created by the reflection of rays of light being heated and bounced off of a, a surface. It often has the appearance of a pool of water. And as these soldiers were struggling through the desert, they began to just see the heat wave bouncing off of the sand, and they began to see that shimmering image that you see in the heat wave there, and they were convinced it was water, and they would rush towards it because they were so incredibly thirsty. One eyewitness account said this upon discovering mirage after mirage after mirage. Quote, Many of our troops would see this water in the distance, and there would always be this incredible rush of adrenaline as men surged forward, eager to quench their thirst and save their very lives. But it wasn't water. It was never really there after all. We were left with our hopes dashed, and it was worse for those who had proclaimed to the entire troop their sighting of water, for they felt embarrassed and ashamed. They saw only what they wanted to see, and we believed them. Not because we saw what they saw, but because we wanted what they saw to be true. All of us were fools in this mistaken hope. Is that how it is with religious experience? Is that how it is with our walk with God? Are we just seeing what we want to see? Are we just experiencing what we want to experience? Is this faith just a mirage in the desert? If you've struggled with this, you're not the only one. All of us, and mature Christians in particular who've lived a life walking with Jesus from time to time, look back and reflection upon their life, and they begin to wonder, is it real? I've been doing this thing for so long. I've become a little bit dry in my relationship with Christ. The excitement, that initial enthusiasm is worn off, and now I'm wondering, is it, is it actually real? Did I see something substantial when I beheld Christ, or am I just chasing after an illusion? 
And if this is you this morning, I want you to understand you're not the first person to ever feel this way. You are not alone. Some of the greatest saints in all of the Bible felt this way. And I'll just quote one to you this morning, the prophet Jeremiah. Talking to the Lord in Jeremiah chapter 15, the prophet says to God, he says, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord of hosts. I did not sit in the company of evildoers, nor did I rejoice, he says. I sat alone because your hand was upon me, for you had filled me with indignation. And here's his question. Having walked with God, he has known pain, he has known heartache, he's known suffering, and it hurts. And he poses this question, why is my pain unceasing? Why is my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you, O God, be to me? Like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail. If you're hearing the prophet Jeremiah making reference to a mirage in the desert, if you're hearing the prophet Jeremiah make reference to water that actually isn't there and comparing God to that, then you're hearing him correctly. Jeremiah struggled. He wanted to know the same thing that you and I want to know. Am I just seeing what I want to see? Am I going through all this pain and all this hardship of following you for a real cause? Or is it just something that I'm imagining? Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that God gives the answer to this question in the passage before us in Romans chapter 5. This morning, as we consider what Paul is saying, we need to remind ourselves he wants us to keep our hope hot. And of course, It's impossible to keep our hope hot if we continue to struggle under doubts about the reality of who God is and what he's done for us. And so that's what we need to consider this morning. God is no unicorn, and his love for us is no mirage. It is real in the exact same way that all of us have, at some point in time, taken a drink of water and known our own thirst to be quenched. And so... In order to help keep your hope hot in God this morning, I want to focus on this text with you in Romans chapter 5, verses 5 to 8. And I want you to see that God's love has been poured into your heart through the indwelling Holy Spirit by drawing your focus to the cross. Today, we need to be reminded always as a church to see the love of God that he has for us and sending his son Jesus to die on the cross. Look at verse 5. The Apostle Paul makes this statement. He says, Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, the first thing we see there is that God's love has been poured into our heart. This is what Paul is claiming to be true of all Christians. And it's not like we are comprehending the love of God through some sort of a logical or mathematical argument. There's a place for that. There's a place for understanding what Scripture is saying and intellectually reasoning our way towards a conclusion. We've all done this on multiple occasions. For example, at some point in time, we've all read the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And from that, we can then deduce God loves the world. 
hey, I'm a part of the world, right? Therefore, God loves me. We can come to understanding the love of God through a logical deduction. That's one way we can know that God loves us. Or you might go even further, for example, and really pick apart the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels. And you come to the Gospel of John, for example, and you read in uh, John chapter 15, greater love has no one than this, that one lays down his life for his friends. And you could argue from John chapter 15, I am one of Jesus' friends because, as it says there, I follow him and I keep his commandments. Therefore, Christ loves me because I am one of his friends. And he has said so. But that's not what Paul is getting at in this passage. He's saying that knowing the love of God goes beyond logical argument. It is something that we experience. He says, quote, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out. Notice the expression, has been poured out. And it has been poured out, he says, into our hearts. So this is something that we're experiencing on an emotional level. This is something that we are uh, witnessing take place inside of our soul. This isn't a mental exercise. This isn't a logical argument. This isn't some sort of a mathematical calculation. This is something that we are experiencing. And he goes on to say that it is a spirit-given experience of God's love. And notice the role, the magnitude of this experience the role that it plays in our walk. If the foundation for how you can be sure that your hope will not be put to shame hinges on this experience, and if we're called to keep our hope hot, then we want to step back and we want to consider the experience of having had the love of God poured into our hearts. Our hope hinges on that. So it's an interesting question that presents itself right off the Hop. Before we can really pick apart this experience of having the love of God poured into our hearts, we have to understand the shame aspect of it. What would hope that could be put to shame, what would that look like? That's the question. Paul is saying that our hope will not be put to shame. So then, before we can understand the full thrust of this passage, we'd have to say, well, what does a hope that can be put to shame What does that look like? Well, there are two ways that hope can be put to shame. Number one, your experience of that hope, you having that hope, could be a sham. For example, you say that you hope in God, but though you may say that, and though you may even believe that, maybe you really don't. Maybe you just think you do. Maybe it's really that you're hoping in your job or in your retirement, your RRSP, Or perhaps you're just feeling and experiencing some sort of a sense of promise and security that comes from having a really good job and knowing that you have job security. You tell yourself that you're hoping in God, but you might be self-deceived. Your hope might not actually be put there. And the, the other way that this could be that you're tricked is that you are actually hoping in God, but perhaps your hope in God is misplaced. Perhaps there really was no God after all. Perhaps you thought there was a God and you placed your hope in him and you experienced that sweet feeling that comes with the promise and the security and the stability of knowing that God is on your side, but in the end you discover God wasn't really there. 
in the one instance, your hope was a deceived hope, but in the other instance, your hope was actually placed in the correct object, but the object turned out to be useless. In both of these instances, your hope could be put to shame. In other words, you're hoping in this thing, and then when the rubber meets the road, it turns out that it was all a mirage. In other words, you could say to everyone around you, look, guys, I've seen water in the distance. Let's go get some. And then you start chasing madly across the desert, and there really was no water. In that instance, you thought you were perceiving water. You thought you were placing your hope in water, and and you rushed everyone over there, and it turned out it wasn't there at all. The object had failed you. But again, the other way is that you yourself could be deceived into thinking that there's something there that really isn't. Now, in terms of coming back to you as a person and whether or not you're really placing your hope in Jesus or whether you're self-deceived and your hope actually isn't in Jesus, Paul has already addressed this question in verses 3 to 5. He had said previously in verse 3, we rejoice or we worship God in our sufferings. That is, we give thanks to God, we praise God with happiness in our suffering. Now, how do we do that? Well, we do that because we know something, and that something is crucial. We know this knowledge is given to us. We know that this experience leads to a greater hope. If you look back really quick, just to remind you of what we looked at last week, there are, in verses 3 to 5, a series of progressions It says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and knowing that endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So Paul is saying that we can know that we are truly hoping in God when we look at the experiences of life that we go through and we continue to place our hope in God. He has three effects that he mentions specifically. Effect number one, perseverance. Tribulation brings perseverance, and therefore threats to our faith give occasion for our faith to continue to press on in hard times. Effect number two, this results in character. When your faith presses on through hard times, it proves itself to be genuine and real. And then that character produces, he says in verse four, more hope. Proven character brings about hope. If your faith perseveres through difficulty and you continue hoping in God, it shows that your hope truly is in the Lord. In a sense, it's like looking in a mirror and realizing there's a real person there looking in the mirror. You're not seeing an illusion. Through the normal experiences that we all go through, when we look in a mirror, we can move our hand, and we see the guy in the mirror move his hand the same way that we do, and we realize when we go through the trials of life that our hope really is in God if we continue hoping in him through the thick and thin. But we come to the second thing now. He says hope starts us down that journey, and it leads us to more hope. And he says that hope does not put us to shame because we have had the love of God poured out into our hearts. And this brings us to the more crucial thing. It's not that the experience of hope might be fake, but that the object of the hope itself might not come through for us. Maybe there really is no God. And maybe we as Christians will look absolutely foolish in eternity 
because our hope is going to be out is going to turn out to be nothing more than a mirage. And that's what he is saying there in verse 5. He says, that is not going to happen. Hope in God, Paul says, does not put us to shame. Now, I'm going to unpack for you exactly why this is, but we need to just step back for a second and offer a few words of caution. Paul is describing an emotional experience in these verses. So, should we just base our understanding of life entirely upon our emotions? I remember when my wife and I were dating very early in our relationship. You know, we didn't have cell phones and text messaging back in those days. And so we would call each other the old-fashioned way. You know, where you'd ring someone, you'd push buttons on a phone, and it was actual mechanical buttons. Young people have no idea what I'm talking about, but... uh, And even for some of the seniors among us, they can remember when you'd actually turn a rotary. Okay. So very early in our dating relationship, we would call and we would leave messages for each other. And because we're high school students and we're going to different extracurricular events, very often times there might be a delay in the return phone call. And so you'd start to wonder, like, oh, I called her and I left her a, a message all of 12 minutes ago, and she hasn't called me back. She doesn't love me. She doesn't love me the way I love her. And because there's so much expectation loaded into that relationship, it's not reciprocating, and because you have so much emotions loaded into that relationship, so much, so much of you is invested in that relationship when she doesn't call you back and it's been all of about 20 minutes, your, your world starts to crumble because you're filtering your understanding of reality way too much through your emotions. And this is very, very dangerous. Universally, the scriptures call us to evaluate the world around us objectively, not even relying entirely upon our own senses, that is what we can see and what we can hear and taste and touch, but to rely on our understanding of the world through Scripture and to rely on God's perspective of reality and to allow His perspective then to inform our perspective. And the reason for that is because we can be mistaken in how we think we see things. We may think we're seeing something a certain way, but then very quickly we can discover we saw it all wrong, we had all the wrong idea, and what we thought it was turns out to be something entirely different. So we should be very cautious about our subjective experiences. Nevertheless, what Paul is driving at here in this text is very much so a subjective experience. And you're sitting there and saying, okay, I thought you just said, preacher, that we shouldn't rely on our subjective experiences. Yes, that is true. But even though we should not rely on our own interpretation of our subjective experiences, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have experiences. The reason why we have to say this is because all truth, all truth is experienced sooner or later. I mean, you can take a mathematical truth, you can say, okay, two plus two is four. That's great. That's just numbers on a dry erase board. 
But when your mom comes and says, I've got four apple slices here. I've got two apple slices there, and I've got two apple slices there, and you put them together, and what do you get? Are you doing math, or are you having a moment with your mom? And the answer is both. There's a mathematical truth that is being experienced. There is a sensation of meaning that is being conveyed from one person's heart to another person. There is a truth that can be understood in terms of the mathematics of it. It can be understood conceptually, but it is experienced through what you're seeing and what you're hearing in this moment that you're having with your mom. All truth is experienced. We are easily deceived being people who are sometimes far too academic far too intellectual into thinking that our emotions and our experiences play no role in our understanding of reality. And what Paul is saying here is, no, that is incorrect. Yes, we must be careful in understanding our interpretation of our experiences, but that's not to say that we shouldn't have these experiences. We have both the experience and the interpretation. Truth should grip us. Jonathan Edwards once said, God wants to reach the heart, but he never bypasses the head along the way. That is true. We have to use our brains. We have to objectively look at things. We have to try to assess things through God's word. But remember, church, God is trying to reach your heart, which is to say, if it's all intellectual, if it's all up here, and if it has never made its way down here, then you're not experiencing the Lord. Truth is experienced. The love of God is far more than what we know. It is how we live. It is not simply truth for believers to grasp, dear church. It grasps us. So, with that in mind, I want to say four things about this experience of the love of God. I struggled, actually, quite quite a bit This is for Greek grammar nerds out there. Is this an objective genitive or is this a subjective genitive? And I won't bore all the rest of you with that, but uh, I see a few of my Greek students in the room this morning, and they're like, yes, yes, we know you struggled with this. I talked to several of them about it over the last couple of weeks. Suffice it to say, what we're talking about is God's love for us. Understanding God's love for us feeling and emotionally experiencing that love. And there are four things I want to say to you about it. First off, the experience of the love of God in our hearts it is something that is poured out through the Holy Spirit. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, the Bible says. Whatever else we're going to say about this experience, the first thing that we have to say is that it is a mediated experience. It is something that is produced in us through the Holy Spirit. Now, you should understand mediated experience. You should understand exactly what I mean by that. You want to know why? Because for all those of us that have ever had a conversation with someone else on social media, what we've done in that moment is we've had a mediated experience. We have not talked directly to that person. We've relied on a digital contraption in order to convey our meaning to that person. If you've ever had a conversation through email, you have had a conversation that was mediated by technology. And what we understand here is that God is showing his love to us, and we are experiencing that, but it is something that is mediated through the Holy Spirit, which is to say that if we don't have the Holy Spirit, we will not have this experience of God's love being poured into our hearts. 
This experience is not something that is generated. It is not pure emotionalism that can be ginned up by dimming the lights and having a really slow, you know, super emotional experience with the music. It is not something that can be manufactured. It is not something that we, in the will of man, can produce. It is a mediated experience where we know God loves us directly, individually, personally, through the Holy Spirit and no other way. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you will not experience the love of God being poured into your hearts. Number two, this experience, it is a sense in the heart of the sweetness that God loves you, but it isn't completely disjointed from reality. It is an experience that is grounded in the objective content God has shown you that he loves you and he has shown you exactly how he loves you by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross. And when the Holy Spirit pours this love into your heart, this understanding of God's love for you, he does so through historical facts related to Jesus Christ. You say, how can you say that, preacher? Look at the very next verse, verses six to eight. In verse five, Paul says, Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Verse 6 starts off with a four. Four. So in other words, God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And now he's going to elaborate upon that. And he's going to say, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for us. So what Paul has just done here is he's just said you have an experience of the love of God that is poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit. It's an emotional experience mediated by the Spirit tied to objective historical content. Something has happened in space and time. And that something is that Jesus has come and died for us. And the Holy Spirit will shed into our hearts this awareness of God's love for us by drawing our gaze to the cross. That's how it works. It says that in verse 6, 4, and again in verse 7, 4. So he says in verse 6, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Then you come back to verse 7. He says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps one would die for a good person. But verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what Paul is saying there is that this experience of the love of God is felt in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It is a mediated experience that draws upon the historical and objective content of the Son of God being born into this world, being born of a virgin, living a sinless, pure, holy life, and then going to the cross and dying for you and for me in our place. And when we reflect upon that, the Holy Spirit works to show us that God loves us. Say, but preacher, isn't this, like you said at the very beginning, couldn't couldn't this be a mirage? Couldn't this be us just seeing what we want to see? Look at the text again. Paul says, hope does not put us to shame. And the foundation for why we know we can have hope is because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We would not want the love of God that is shown to us 
in Jesus dying on the cross if we did not have the Holy Spirit opening our eyes to see that love and to desire that love. The psalmist says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. There's this exhortation from Scripture, come and experience the love of God. And that's the call to all the world. Come and know the love of God. And yet, time and again, we share this gospel, we proclaim this good news, and what's the world's response? I've got better things to do. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, says no one, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except speaking in the power of the Holy Spirit. And conversely, he goes on to say, no one can say that Jesus is cursed if he has the Holy Spirit. So what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is that there's this hard line that is drawn by the Holy Spirit. If you say, well, Jesus was a good man, but he was just a man, and he had a horrible life with a terrible ending. In other words, what you're saying is that Jesus was cursed. Well, you don't have the Holy Spirit. And if you say, Jesus is Lord, he is my Savior and the sweetest thing in my life, he is all that I want, you're incapable of saying that except that you have the Holy Spirit. So what Paul is saying here is the only way you would ever want Jesus to start with is if you had the Holy Spirit drawing your desire for Christ, drawing it into you from God's love. That's the thrust of what this text is saying. You say, okay, preacher, aren't we just saying that we're seeing things that we want to see? And the response from God's word is you wouldn't even want to see this unless God had called you to it. You're not seeing just what you want to see. You're seeing what you want to see, and the fact that you want to see it is itself the miracle. Church, can you say amen? That's the power of the Holy Spirit that's being given to you. At some point in time, you're hearing the good news that there's a God in heaven that loves you and that he sends his son to die for you. And for most of our life, we're thinking, yes, it's a great story. God has this love for the world. And we think it's a wonderful story, and God's dying for the world, and we can take that in, and we're processing it intellectually, and we're understanding it just the exact same way that we might understand 2 plus 2 equals 4. We might even be able to say, yes, I know God loves me, the same way we could say John three sixteen, for God so loves the world, he sent his son. And we're making these logical knowledge inferences based on the scripture. We're able to come to these deductions, but... What Paul is saying here is there's a moment in our life in which we were sitting there, perhaps hearing the word of God being preached, or perhaps sitting and reflecting, perhaps reflecting on Scripture. And the Holy Spirit came to us in this moment, and it was no longer just this broad, vague sort of uh, logical argument in which God died for the world, but you realized he died for you. You realized, I'm a sinner, and I don't deserve this, and God loves me. And it's not just a simple knowledge that, oh, yes, God loves the world, and Jesus loves the world, and Jesus went to the cross to die on on the cross for the sins of the world. But what Paul is saying here is there was a moment in which the Holy Spirit opened your eyes to understand that when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he's not just thinking of the world. He's thinking of you specifically. Jesus is hanging on the cross loving you. Not just the world in broad, vague terms. He's dying 
for you because he loves you. And your name was on the tip of his tongue. Your name was in his mind. And he was thinking, I'm dying for Josh Claycamp. And there was a moment in which I realized that. And no one comes to that conclusion unless the Holy Spirit opens their eyes to see it. Do I want it to be true? Well, brothers and sisters, I don't just want it to be true. I know it's true. And I know it's true because if it wasn't true, I wouldn't really want it in the first place. This is a subjective experience that is attached to historical content that is able to be verified on the basis of eyewitness accounts. But none of it, none of it produces in you the emotional response that Paul is talking about until the Holy Spirit works to bring the love of God into your heart. That's what Paul is driving at here. Now, I want to offer one caution. Though Paul is clearly talking about a subjective experience, and it is an awareness of that experience, which should continue to encourage us to keep our hope hot, one thing we need to step back and realize here is that this experience of the love of God will wax and wane. It will be hot and it will be cold from time to time. In verse 5b, it says God's, in the second half of verse 5, it says God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. I'd invite you to turn with me to 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 3. In the book of Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul has been warning the church at Thessalonica about the end of days, the coming of the son of lawlessness, the man of lawlessness who opposes all so-called objects of worship, every God, even proclaiming himself to be the one true God and demanding that people worship him. And of course, the church at Thessalonica is struggling under this deception. They've thought, oh, we must have missed it. That day has already come. And he's writing to them, telling them, no, you haven't missed that day. And he goes through a series of other moral exhortations, but then he comes here in chapter 3, and he makes this really profound statement. It's a prayer. And his statement is, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now, that's a really profound statement if you think about it. Your heart, then, is capable of, of directing towards other things. You're called to be directed towards the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's exactly where your heart is going to go. Your heart can go in other directions. This is why Paul is praying this prayer. He's saying to the church at Thessalonica, you're discouraged. They're mistaken. They think they've been left behind. He corrects that illusion. He corrects that deception But then he speaks to their hearts and he says, my prayer for you, the thing that I'm praying and asking God to do is that your heart would be directed towards the love of God, which is to imply it can go elsewhere, 
But we should be praying and seeking for it to come back and to be focusing in on the love that God has for us. And it's tied to steadfastness, the perseverance that comes, the perseverance that Jesus had, the perseverance that you and I are called to have. So hope and keeping our hope hot and persevering to the end, this is directly rooted in our being focused in and being directed towards the love that God has for us that he has shown to us in sending his son Jesus to die on the cross for us. This is incredibly practical. God loves you specifically. You and I are not capable of wrapping our minds around the fact that there's a God who's both imminent and transcendent. That is, he's immediately right next to us, and yet at the same time, he's over all and above all and sees all. We are limited, finite creatures, and so for us to wrap our minds around the way that God operates and the way that God works and the way that he thinks, we're always going to struggle with this. You know, if I step back and I think about all the people I can have close in my life, all the close friends that I can have, I mean, the reality is that I can really be close to about maybe two dozen guys. That's actually stretching it. My wife would tell you I'm not that close to two dozen guys, but I think I am. I think I got about 20, 25 men that I'm close with in my life. And my wife, she keeps up a steady correspondence with what I think to be about 500 people. I think she's close with like thousands upon thousands of people. She wouldn't agree with that either. But what we would both say to you is that we're limited in the number of people that we can just be right by their side, right next to, and keep close in our life. Such is not the case with our Heavenly Father. We're called to be invested in a church. We're called to bear each other's burdens. There's only so many people that we can be close to. There's only so many burdens that we can bear. We are tempted to read our own human frailty back into the character of God. And Satan is right there to whisper to us, yes, of course, God is far away. He's got so many important problems to take care of. He doesn't have time for you. It's not true, church. It's not true. Your heavenly Father loves you. You. And he knows you. You by name. And though you are tempted to read into him your own limitations, we know God is infinite. We know he's great. He's overseeing all the universe. The scripture refers, reminds us time and again that he's right next to us. He's next to you. And so if you would have a steadfast walk with God, you must know the love of Christ that can be poured into your hearts, and it must be poured in through the Holy Spirit. All of this by looking to what Jesus did on the cross and realizing that that same passion that he had for you on that day that drove him to dying for you is the passion that he's had for you every single moment. Is the passion he has for you right now. The world says, I don't believe that there is a God. They're not actually interested in water. For you and me, we have found water. 
And it's not a mirage. We've tasted it. We've known it is real. And when the world says, I don't believe it, our response needs to be, of course you could never believe something that you never tried. It's a subjective argument, but it's the one we see here in Scripture. Keep your hope hot in Christ and keep looking to the Lord for his nourishment. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much for your word to us, Lord. We as Baptists, as people of the book, tend to be reluctant to acknowledge the reality of subjective experience. God, we have tasted, we have seen you, we have known your love for us. It's an experience that you have given us by your spirit. And we thank you. Lord, never allow our experiences to be the end of all our understanding. Help us always to be testing our experiences objectively by the truth of Scripture. But Lord, let us never become a dry people that say it's all a matter of the intellect and there's nothing to be experienced. We want to know you, God, and we want to know your love. And we want to have that love shed abroad in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for giving us that experience. And as we share that good news with our friends and our family, neighbors who don't know you, Lord, help us to speak of you in a way that they know it's a real relationship and not a series of propositions. Let our walk with you be the sweetest, greatest thing that we know day by day. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.